1: This is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall podcast. We have two basic issues we're going to talk about today. One is, you know, we're actually we're normally we record the podcast uh, slightly after noon on Wednesdays, and right now it is a little after five o'clock, and and we're we are uh, we delayed it a bit because Kate was covering. These oral arguments today where what seems to be the case that will overturn Roe V. Wade was argued before the Supreme Court. And I think most people, most people, many people, realized uh, when Amy Coney Barrett was, was placed on the court that that was, that was it for Roe v. Wade. Um, some people, you know, held out some hopes or something. I think those, those hopes were fairly naive. Uh but in today's oral arguments, uh she and Brett Kavanaugh seem to clarify for anybody who need clarifying what's gonna happen. You know, they're on the court, they're young, they have lifetime appointments. They don't have to to do little workarounds about uh, they're not going to speak, you know, not going to not going to comment on a case that might come before me on the court and all that mumbo jumbo. They're going to do it. And And Kate was uh, covering and watching uh, those hearings for us today, uh, listening. And so we're going to we're going to dig into into what happened and why uh, I think it's sort of the universal impression that people have that if there was any lingering doubt that maybe justice roberts was going to put together a coalition for reductions or you know limitations on abortion rights maybe one that would be you know one of these like 15 week ones where it's you know radically limited but at least in theory there is still a legal right to obtain an abortion that got that seemed to have gotten uh, be put to rest we're also going to talk about the other big story of the week, kind of a, a bit, you know, a bit of a bummer, uh, <laughs> this Omicron variant and uh, every, you know, the whole world trying to trying to get a handle on what is going on with this thing. I think that there is, there is probably more uncertainty than maybe the news reports that you, you have heard make out. I'm not trying to kind of be Pollyannish about it. It's potentially a pretty, a pretty big reverse in our the United States efforts, the globe's efforts to put uh, COVID behind us. But there's, there's a lot of different, there's a lot of things we don't know. So we're going to talk about both of those. Uh, Before we do that, I want to remind you that Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee is the sponsor of the Josh Marshall Podcast. Do you like to start your day with a healthy blend of coffee and doom scrolling? Then you need coffee that gives you enough energy to fend off a a wild horde of feral dweebs or whatever obstacles you face. A Grady's Cold Brew Kit makes it easy to brew up a super strong coffee concentrate. Of course, If you wake up feeling a little less ready to battle your enemies, you can always add an extra splash of water, milk or to t- t- tame the caffeine. With Grady's every batch you brew has infinite possibilities. You're ready to discover your perfect brew? Get 25% off at gradyscoldbrew.com with promo code TPM. That's gradyscoldbrew.com with promo code TPM. Stumbling a little on uh on my copy reading today. Sorry to uh to the suits at Grady's uh because of that. But l- let's dig into this. So so Kate, the sort of the universal read that i have heard that i saw from from your report at TPM is that people expected it to be bad and it was significantly worse than what people expected <laughs> yep so give let's start with an overview what you know
0: what happened yeah, so just to remind readers, this case is on a 15-week abortion ban out of Mississippi. It's been a le- a bit less attention grabby than the Texas one that everyone's heard of by this point because, you know, the Texas ban had that weird enforcement scheme to try to evade judicial review and make it impossible for someone to just sue the whole state and kind of preemptively uh, preemptively knock the law down. This is a more straightforward 15-week ban, but... In the filings, the state just flat out encourages the justices to use this opportunity to overturn the abortion precedent, which is Roe v. Wade and Casey versus Planned Parenthood. So experts have long kind of warned that this is the bigger risk than the Texas case. If the conservatives want to go right at Roe, this is the case that they'll use. So in my preparation for the oral arguments, you know, I talked to kind of a lot of experts, read all the briefs and the reason that people were taken aback by these arguments is because they thought if for nothing else than political purposes the conservatives would see reason to couch their questions in you know a respect for precedent or to kind of tiptoe around the idea or maybe to focus more specifically on the viability line which is basically you know the point at which a fetus can survive outside the womb, which is around 24 weeks. You know, some people expected them to question the science and then to maybe debate moving up the viability line to 15 weeks where this ban was. But besides John Roberts, who was kind of spending a lot of his time on a hypothetical 15-week ban, the other conservatives just didn't even pretend to address the Mississippi ban. I mean, almost all of their comments, all of the thrust was poking holes in those foundational abortion cases, you know, questioning the constitutional grounding of the right to an abortion, um, you know, the historical precedent, all this kind of stuff. They They just went right at it. And I think the thought was they might be hesitant to do that because of the massive backlash it would spark if they did just overturn Roe outright. Plus, you don't really need to. I mean, you can keep abortion legal...
1: So, well, that, that's kind of what I, what I wanted to address here and ask you about. So this, as you, as you state, that the, the Texas law had what you might generously call a lot of legal no, uh, novelty, sort of mm-hmm. like you can become like, you know, abortion privateers, basically, and, you know, privately do these things with lawsuits and so forth, you know, get bounties. But the Mississippi law is just sets a different uh, timeline you know now it's what is it it's uh you know uh, second trimester and this pushes it back to 15 weeks and so there's nothing at least as i understand it there's nothing odd or different about the law it just sets a different time frame um and so the court could say okay yeah i like your new law that's great and and we're going to approve that and that would just now 15 weeks and, and obviously 15 weeks is a pretty drastic curtailment of you know the the the, the timing framework did they get into you know, why they would make it, or sort of appear to preview making a decision that the case doesn't require them to make at all you know, there's, there's different sort of philosophies of jurisprudence here. You don't, why are they jumping to overturn Roe when even this case does not require that in any way?
0: I mean, the state is asking in their filings, they are asking them to overturn Roe and Casey outright, and if not, to get rid of the viability standard altogether, which, as you can imagine, would keep abortion legal in theory, but red states would basically race each other to see who can set the shortest abortion ban, you know, you can terminate a pregnancy after one day or something like that. Right. 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 Um, right. But I think, I think just the thing that's shocking is kind of the sheer opportunism. Like the, the bulk of the conservatives on the court just were not being coy about it. We're not really keeping their cards close to the vest. I'd say with the, with the exception of Gorsuch was a a bit more understated Uh, Barrett, maybe you could argue, but I mean, the other three, in particular, Alito, Thomas and Kavanaugh, were just pretty blatant. I mean, Kavanaugh kind of went off on these two different little monologues where he just kind of spitballed about, well, you know, we're supposed to be neutral. The Constitution is silent on abortion. Why not just outsource this to the states? Let us be neutral again uh, on this question, as if not protecting a constitutional right is somehow neutrality.
1: Right, right. Did... I I guess I'm curious at some level why that surprised people. Um, You know, maybe, I mean, you know, this is the big, this is the big one. This is the big thing. This is, this is the, you know, there's, there's the whole conservative judicial legal movement that has been a thing in this country for 40 years or so. Federalist society, all that kind of stuff. Those folks have a lot of different fish to fry legally. In this country, abortion is not the only thing they're interested in. In many ways, a lot of the, a lot of the sort of the you know kind of smarty pants law pro, you know conservative law professor types there are other issues that they're most interested in. But it's abortion that provided the engine and the motive power to take the you know federalist society conservative legal movement and and change it from like you know just a kind of a student group at law schools to something that now dominates the whole federal judiciary and that's abortion. So now that they have not just the votes, they have more than enough votes. I mean, sort of, you know, it's kind of you have that you have that uh Roberts issue where he's always wanting to kind of hold back a little for a whole series of possible reasons. But they have 6 votes. So why, you know, why would they be coy?
0: I think because it would be more in keeping with how a lot of the abortion battles have been fought, particularly on the state level. When you look at trap laws in particular, which have to do with kind of heaping silly restrictions on abortion providers that make it impossible for them to function, things like hallway width, countertop level, things like that. They were so weedy and boring and complicated that no one paid attention to them and no one really mustered up any fight against them. And it, it you know, that com- combined with the fact that pro-choice groups, especially on the state level, have been just completely underfunded for years, but that let a lot of this stuff go through. And I think the thinking was somewhat similar here, that if they went at Roe in a weedy, hard to follow, hard to capture in a scary headline way, they wouldn't have to reckon with the backlash that would happen that will happen when headlines read Supreme Court overturns Roe. So then, you know, you kill both birds with one stone. You basically make abortions almost impossible to get. And then you don't have to worry about, you know, your buddies in the Republican Party, perhaps having their midterms endangered or just funneling this wave of political activism towards Democrats.
1: Right, right. That all makes sense. I guess my and, and I'm not sure this is right, what I'm going to say. I guess just intuitively, it seemed to seems to me that unless and until you had a strong anti-abortion rights majority on the court, there was always an interest in, in, you know, sort of, you know, there's this thing, Zeno's paradox. If you, if there's a, if, if I'm not telling you this, but just for our listeners, if the distance between you and a line, if you keep going halfway to the line... You know, if it's four feet at two feet, then one feet, blah, 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 blah. you will never arrive, mm-hmm. you know, and it's the, there's been a reason why they want a kind of a Zeno's paradox approach to row, because as you say, you never get the scary headlines. It just kind of happening in a, in, in a cryptic kind of way. That it's just harder and harder to do, even though there's still abortion rights, you know, still Roe, still Casey, all this kind of stuff. But it just seems to me now they have six seats, and they know they have five seats, right? They don't have to. They don't even have to worry about John Roberts nonsense anymore. So why hold back? I mean, I'm not saying I'm I'm right. That's just my kind of. It seems to me that way. I mean, and for whatever reason, they seem they seem not to be holding back.
0: I mean, I, I guess there are factors, right? That might. Encourage them to feel that way, as we've talked a lot about on this podcast. We're reaching a point where, you know, the kind of structural advantages to the Republican Party are, are so great that maybe they're not concerned about, you know, a, a hyped up Democratic base. I don't know.
1: Yeah. It's, you know, it's funny because on the one hand, these people are the people who make up this majority are deeply partisan, deeply political but they've got their own judicial ambitions Mm -hmm. and they're not necessarily that worried about the short-term prospects of the Republican Party. I think they worry about it a lot, but I think their worry about the electoral prospects of the Republican Party can at least take a bit of a backseat to to a prize this big, Yeah. right? And, you know, there's, I think the... I believe the oldest member of the court at this point is is Clarence Thomas, mm-hmm. I believe. I think he's about 70. You know, as as supreme court justices go, that's, you know, that's midlife basically. Um <laughs> so, you know, the all sorts of things could happen and they're still going to have six votes. So kind of who cares? Did you get just from obviously not from the not from the hearing itself, but just you know seeing the uh public reaction to that hearing from from just you know kind of random anybody's to high ranking elected officials what is how you, how characterize the response what, what is the what is the reaction been
0: yeah i mean i spent my day on the hill on tuesday kind of preemptively asking um particularly the the female democratic senators about this and kind of uh, confirming for for myself and our readers that there is no viable path to passing any kind of legislation to preempt what the Supreme Court might do. Um, If you haven't read my piece, there is not such a path. I mean, obviously, our listeners know there is the filibuster, you're never ever going to get 10 Republicans to vote for abortion safeguards. And then within the Democratic Party, there's not even unification. I mean, Joe Manchin and Bob Casey both call themselves pro-life and have not um, signed off on a, a Senate version of a House bill that passed in September that would codify Roe v. Wade. So in, in that way, I think a lot of the reaction has kind of mirrored what the, the lawmakers told me on Tuesday, which was, yeah, we're super worried about it. We think it's going to be really bad and not a ton you can do about it right now. Right, I mean, right. I think Tammy Duckworth gave me the most candid answer where she said, you know, we need to pass legislation and we can't do that in a 50-50 Senate. So that makes the 2022 midterms much more important, which actually it does bring up something I wanted to talk to you about, which is that um, I don't know if you saw the Senate Democrats Twitter account tweeted elect more Democrats to safeguard abortion rights. And people got really mad about it. Like there was a, a significant backlash to that. And I, I get it. You know, I I think the backlash is rooted in the fact that there's like so little compassion in that tweet. It's such a how can we best use this to our political advantage kind of whiff to it. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. I I think it's also just a bit. I don't know. I, I think the frustration is coming from people being like, we we did all this work to elect all these Democrats and it's frustrating to see nothing get done even though, you know, it's back to the issue of the 50-50 Senate, which, which we've discussed.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's a tough one because uh, we have a tied Senate. Basically, no one has ever passed any major legislation with a tied Senate. It just doesn't happen. And it's, it's this weird dynamic now where, you know, Democrats have unified power in washington by the thinnest margins imaginable they what is it you know a three-seat majority in the house a no seat majority in the senate a a, you know senior citizen president whose poll numbers are currently underwater that is just really hard to do a lot in that in that setting um and you know the the other thing it's funny you know you have this you have this this very um toxic dynamic where the expectations are higher than they have ever been and for good reason but the power to do stuff is about as thin as it could possibly be you know one of the things that you know a lot of people say how um you know democracy itself is on the ballot in in two thousand twenty two and in real ways it is, but what that means is is that not only do Democrats need to you know pass a kind of a, a New deal quantity of legislation with their fifty seat majority in the Senate, they also never they they also can never lose another election because if they lose an election, then democracy will be over and i'm not I'm not making fun of that argument there's some real truth to that argument, but you get a sense of Wow, these are some pretty high expectations. You need to pass, you know, you need to pass a new deal scale of legislation with a tie Senate and you can't ever lose an election. That's that's tough. That's a hard standard.
0: Yeah, I mean, I have a couple of thoughts on this. The first of which is reactions that way that's like what have you done for me lately? Why should I vote for you again? Seems To me, to be a mindset that maybe predates January 6th, predates the Republican Party becoming such an active threat to democracy, because I just think the old kind of pendulum swings don't apply as cleanly as they used to, because it's on the in the worst case scenario, right? You have one party that people find to be very ineffectual and weak. And then you have a party, on the other hand, where its members like cheer Stealing elections, so I mean, there is a fundamental mismatch there.
1: Yeah,
0: and I also think the the "What have you done for me lately?" thing it is a little bit of the recency bias, where you know they they passed this huge relief bill when they first got in, and they passed the bipartisan infrastructure bill. They are, even though, trust me, no one feels it more agonizingly than me. They're on the heels of passing the reconciliation bill. I mean, what? would people claim as wins under the Trump administration? You pretty much had those tax cuts in 2017 and a couple COVID relief packages. And, you know, that's kind of the long and the short of it. So I, I get people's frustrations. I think they should pretty much all be channeled towards Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema and And kind of to pull back on this desire to just say, you know, this is all the Democrats' fault. The Democrats won't get this done. It's like actually, if you got rid of the filibuster, you would find that you had 48 people lined up to do pretty much everything that Democratic constituents want to get done. There really are just a couple people who are kind of creating this situation.
1: I think, yeah, I mean, another 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 issue in this in this conversation. And I mean, the broader conversation, the one that you and I are engaging in now, but w- that we have seen you know um, more than usual in 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 two thousand and twenty one is you know, who are the Democrats? you know i did a i did a did a post a live I don't know a few weeks ago, a few months ago, something like this and and as a sort of a parenthetical in this conversation, you know in in, in this in this uh, debate, I said, you know a lot of a lot of the die was cast when Democratic voters did not manage to, you know, bring home victories in North Carolina, in Maine, in a bunch of states that, that, that seemed winnable, right? Um, and it didn't happen. And I got a lot of pushback like, oh, the voters let down, Joe, you know, Chuck Schumer. The voters failed the Democrats. <laughs> There's some weird stuff in our society about collective responsibility you know, who are the Democrats? It's really everybody who is in a, you know, a broad political camp in this country. You can say Chuck Schumer sucks or Nancy Pelosi sucks or any, you know, any number of people suck. But at the end of the day, this is a collective thing. We're not, we don't all have the equal amount of power, but it is, it is the Democratic, you know, Democrats didn't get it done. As much as, you know, it's, it's fantastic that they, that they even got a majority, you know, technical majority in the Senate. So, but this also comes back to that, you know, what have you done for me lately? Well, okay, where else are you going to go?
0: That's what I mean.
1: You know, if, if you're kind of like, you're really upset about, demo, you know, saving democracy, and you're really upset about abortion, and you're really upset about, uh, you know, immigration and dreamers, and these are all things to be really upset about. I'm upset about them. But, okay, you're, you know, where, where else are you going to go? You know, it's a collective thing, and it, again... Tied senates, you don't, um, you know, where are you going to go? And, uh, d- you know, to your, to your point about the sort of, you know, coldness or I guess sort of, you know, reducing the moment to an electoral calculus. I get that. I mean, that is, you know, m- maybe there's some not reading the room of, of the tonality there. But, you know, if this is important, yeah, you got to elect more Democrats because parties with significant majorities certainly with actual majorities remember the democrats don't have a majority they have 50 votes they just have the vice president there who can knock them over the you know over the edge that is what you have to do and and uh you know people i, I assume this is kind of a you know these are back and forth talking about on twitter and twitter sort of a place where everybody sort of um you know vents their either their ids or their you know crying three-year-old in a fetal position, all of which we have all these things, right? When you're just upset and you're, you are you want to lash out at someone. But these are the realities. You got to elect more Democrats. Yep, That's just a fact. And you can, th- the reality is the Democrats is not, it's not the DNC, the secret cabal of the DNC. And it's not, it's not this person or that person. They have a lot more power. They should be accountable if things aren't going well. But at the end of the day, it's up to every, it's, it is up to everyone who is, you know, in our country. You are, um, you're either a Democrat or a Republican, or you're someone who chooses not to call themselves a Democrat or Republican, but it has politics that are either more similar to the Democrats or more similar to the Republicans. This is just the reality we live in. So, anyway, should we talk about Omicron now?
0: Yeah, let's move on to plague and pestilence. Yeah, so. move
1: on to a more <laughs> a more fun topic. Um, so, yeah, you know, I've been following, and and let me let me tell everyone who I've mentioned this a few times on the site. Um, it's hard to get good information about anything tied to COVID. You know, what you want things that are reliable, you want knowledgeable. When 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 you want really kind of detailed information, you want that. I've got this list on Twitter. You know, Twitter has lists, you can curate lists. I have a list of about 50, 50 or 60 epidemiologists, clinicians, science journalists, all, each one of whom. You know, very knowledgeable, very trustworthy. Uh, if you go to, if, if you're interested in looking at it, I've linked it on the site. You can also just find me on Twitter, and then you know, it, it uh, the Twitter interface lists the lists that someone has. It's 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 there. It's like you know, the epidemiologist list or something like that. So if you're interested in this, I would I would uh, recommend that. That's a really good uh, uh, place. It's it's sort of striking to me. I mean, this has been obviously COVID has dominated the world for the last almost 2 years and so it's not a surprise that everybody is you know everybody in every country in the world follows this really closely with all that though it's still it's still pretty striking that this variant which only really became a global news story on Thanksgiving so what like you know just under a week ago it's totally, you know, totally upended and then reended, uh, you know, global equities markets. There's travel bans, pharmaceutical companies talking about, you know, revising, you know, it, it has been a massive, massive thing. Um, what's what's your sense? Is this has this has this has this is this a personal issue for you? <laughs> is it making you think like, all right, am I going to have to live my life different in the next year or how? What, what Where are you on all this?
0: Full candor here over Thanksgiving I decided in the interest of my self-care I was not going to read about this variant because I could not take it um, so I, I've seen a bit more now but I I don't know I think you know I've been kind of uh leading our coverage on congress and the supreme court and it's a that's a bit weighty so i'm okay. like i'm gonna let the other people figure out the variant so you have to tell me what fully is going on here well, you know,
1: it's funny because one, and this is the personal level of it, that um, as as many of our listeners know, I, I well, you don't know my exact age. I'm 52. I have two teenage sons. Um, they've both been, vac- you know, they're both over 12. Uh, so they've been vaccinated for a while. And before, there was a period of time when my wife and I were vaccinated but they weren't vaccinated. And like I love my kids, but most kids do do okay with COVID. So it's really like do not bring your kid COVID into my house and give me COVID. I don't want to get COVID. When they got vaccinated, like okay, you know that's an improvement and and you know I'm fully vaccinated. I've had a booster. So I think like many people in the United States, I have been able to move into this place you know over the last several, you know, almost year now, but several months, in which, you know, I could definitely get COVID. I'm not like, you know, locked in a in a in a plastic bubble in my house. I go out, I, you know, I mask. I, you know, pretty cautious. But I have been able to have a pretty strong confidence. That if I get COVID, it is not going to end my life. And it is very unlikely I'm going to end up in the hospital. I'll be, you know, and I might, I could get long COVID and maybe lose my sense, all bad sense of smell, all those things. But like the getting COVID, I have not experienced as an existential issue as it was for pretty much everybody, you know, to different degrees uh, in 2020. And so it's one of those things like, wow, I don't want to go back to that. I don't want to go back to that. I don't want to be kind of like, you know, if I'm in a supermarket with my mask and kind of like, if I get COVID, I could die. Like, I don't want, you know, that's a whole different thing. So, in any case, that's, that's like, you know, that's my, my, uh, my subjective disquisition about my stuff that goes on inside my head. It, it's funny. It's, it is, it, The thing is, it's also, this has always been kind of the funny thing to me about COVID. It is both terrifying and has damaged all of our lives to a great degree. I mean, some people more than others, to put it mildly, but it has affected all of us to a great degree, even those of us who are lucky enough to have never gotten it, um, have not had a close loved one who's had a bad experience with it, blah, 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 blah. It's affected all of us. But it's also fascinating the mRNA vaccines. All the stuff that that the science of, of virology today, you know, back in in, in uh, 1918 with the Spanish flu, they didn't even know what a virus was. They didn't know the difference between bacteria and viruses. And now, you know, they have these things where you can actually they have maps of the things that oh, this little part is moved. I mean, it's fascinating stuff. You know, the different uh, different uh, parts of the spike protein and everything. I think the key is we don't really we don't really know what we're dealing with. And it is possible, I want to stress this again, it is possible based on what we know right now that Omicron will be have spread advantages over other forms of COVID, but will be le- a less serious disease. That's a good thing. Now, it, it might be a less serious disease, but it also has significant immune evasion. So that's a little more complicated, right? Like it may be a less dangerous disease, but your vaccine may not help you as much in avoiding getting it or fighting it. There's also really bad scenarios where the vaccine loses a lot of its effectiveness all tied to this issue of this the, the spike protein it's a very different spike now it's got all you know it's got basically all the mutations that all the other variants have exaggerating a little there but not much and a bunch more and maybe it's more lethal maybe it's more transmissible you put all these things together and you get a really bad scenario it's probably some mix of the of the two i mean one of one of the most interesting People to me in this whole story is this guy, um, Trevor Bedford, who, who has a research lab at this place in uh, Washington State. And he's someone I started following at the very beginning of the, of the epidemic, pandemic. He was the one, if everybody remembers back to the very beginning, the one who figured out that the cases um, in Washington State, you know, kind of figured out that it was spreading in Washington State. By all this kind of, you know, uh, viral DNA analysis. In any case, one of the things I, he had a really good uh, Twitter thread about this. That one of the basic questions is: Is it more transmissible? Is it more contagious? That that in many ways can be more important than whether it's more deadly, because it can be a bit more deadly, but if it's more transmissible. Even even something that is the same level of deadliness, if it's more transmissible, lots more people will get it, and so lots more people will die. So transmissibility is a key thing. It seems to be spreading quickly in South Africa and displacing Delta. So it seems to have an advantage over Delta. And that seems like, okay, it must be more transmissible. It must spread more easily. But it's not that simple. It might even be less transmissible. It might be less contagious, but in a country like South Africa, a big majority of the population is either vaccinated or they've had COVID. So it might be less transmissible, but people might have less immune protection from it. So there's all these different variables in play: immune evasion, transmissibility, um, you know, inherent deadliness, right? How sick it makes the average person. And what what they're going on now is just that the there are way more mutations than any of the you know than the other variants have had. It seems to have transmissibility advantages over Delta, although that's not clear. And so the scenarios really range from not that big a deal to pretty bad, and we just kind of don't. Know yet? Because these things take at least a couple weeks to really um, to really sort out. The one thing I will say is the one sort of you know positive in all of this is that mRNA vaccines are fairly easy to update, and I have not seen anybody who thinks that Omicron is harder to make a vaccine against than Alpha, the original variant, Delta, whatever. It's just that you need to kind of bring it to market. And they can probably do that in three or four months. It's not a matter of waiting a year to get a new vaccine if it's kind of the worst case scenario. You can probably get it, and Pfizer says they can do it in a hundred days now,
0: yeah, but isn't that super unsustainable? It's like what are we going to make a new vaccine for every variant and ask everyone to get it every time?
1: Well, yes and no. We ask people to get a flu shot every year yeah and, but- that, and that's that's that that is the same. It's the same thing. Well, you know, with the flu, these are different variants of the flu. The flu is constantly evolving. I, I think, um, I mean, I'm not saying that's great. I'm just saying it's better than waiting, you know, a year for another yeah. vaccine. Yeah. And I I you know, you know, yeah, if if we are perpetually in the state where, you know, every six months there's some new variant and we're kind of, you know, back in, in COVID groundhog day, yeah, that will really suck.
0: I mean, yeah, I guess I'm just wondering, is there any reason to believe that we won't be in that state? I mean, that's where we've been so far, right? Well,
1: I think we don't know. I think a lot of things are possible. I think that if one one reason we're in the Omicron situation is that about half the world's population is not vaccinated. Right. And that means you have lots of, you know, more than enough population to mutate endlessly. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, one thing here is this is why you need sort of global vaccination. That is, that is the clearest path to sort of, you know, bring this to an end. I think, you know, one thing is that every scientist, clinician, epidemiologist who, who follows this, I think pretty much all of them have assumed that eventually there will be mutations that, that mean you need an updated vaccine. Most of them seem surprised that it ha- that this one with such dramatic differences popped up now. And there's a lot of questions like, how did that happen exactly? And I don't think anybody knows. I mean, obviously, there's, there's uh, you know, it could just be bad luck, you know, humanity's bad luck. One of the interesting things I saw, and this was, I want to I want to emphasize this was just raised as a legitimate possibility not something that is proven it's it's speculation but from a very knowledgeable person most of the coverage of this has assumed that this variant originated by long term infection of someone with immune compromise so maybe someone with HIV AIDS or some other you know ba- basically it gets in someone's body and there's like a standoff and that gives the virus a lot of time to kind of, you know, to mutate and and come up with better strategies. Basically, this person, and I, I don't remember the person's name, but again, this wasn't some random person. This was a, a a very respected scientist in this field said that he thought that was less likely, and that what he thought was a real possibility is that this kind of dramatic jump that it that uh, this variant of COVID made and. We know it's a dramatic, we don't know whether it is a dramatic jump that is relevant to us humans. We know that there's a lot of mutations, a lot, you know, rapid level of mutations, more than we have seen in the other variants. That how this happened, or one possible way this may have happened, is that it went from human hosts to an animal host. That involves a lot of, uh, you know, a, a lot of uh, mutations to adapt to another con- you know, another species. So human to animal, and then back from animal to human. Because one of the things when they're kind of doing all this detective work now about this variant is it seemed to pop up. It seems to have a long, its lineage has a long history, but it seemed to pop up with a huge number of, muta- of mutations kind of out of the blue. And so how does that, you know, How's that happen? Well, one potential way it happens is it took a detour into some other species for a while. Um, in any case, it is a if the you know fate of humanity weren't on the line, it's a fascinating detective story, right? And there's a lot of amazing science to how they figure this stuff out. Um, alas, uh, humanities is humanity's fate is at stake, or at least suffer potential suffering on a on a Global scale. But that's where it is. And that's, you know, we just have a lot of unknowns. And it really does seem to be, you know, run the range from your vaccine will be, you know, less effective against infection, but still pretty effective against, you know, a bad outcome, getting hospitalized or dying, to, you know, our vaccines really may not work as well for a while until we get boosters. And so we could be in for a, a a pretty tough winter in the Northern hemisphere. So should we do questions?
0: Yes. Okay. Um, Our first question from Josh, who says he wanted to hear our analysis um, on the potential impact of various abortion rulings on the 2022 midterms. So kind of connects with what we were talking about. Do you think Democrats will see some kind of huge surge if the court Comes, remember, this was only oral arguments today. So, if the court comes to a final ruling on this case before November 2022,
1: and I think the expectation is is that this ruling would come out in like May, June, July, yeah, in in the summer. So, it it's obviously the court can do anything it wants, but they have a schedule they go by. So, I think it is it is highly likely this will this will happen in the summer, you know, a right. few months in advance of the midterm.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think the only reason there's question around that is because they took such an unusually long time to take up this case in the first place. It was reconferenced like a billion times. But right, yeah, right. that is when it's expected to come out.
1: Right. So what what is what is your sense? What do you what what are your own thoughts? What are you what are you what did you pick up on the yeah. hill yesterday about that?
0: I think yeah. I mean, I think it'll pump up the base. I think it's probably an overall good thing for Democrats. Kind of the same way that Republicans have pretty adeptly just turned elections into, do you want a Supreme Court seat, then vote for our guy. Um, And I think Democrats are so deflated in general that having a fire under the collective constituency's ass is probably a good thing, but... I, I don't know. I my, my kind of pet theory is that 2022 is all going to come down to what COVID looks like at that time, if it's still kind of making everyone live half lives or not. And I'm not sure that it's all that much deeper than that. Um, I think that we you know, on this pod and, and in the larger conversation, I've spent so much time talking about why Biden's numbers went down, why they continue to go down, uh, why the mood shift. I just really think it all comes down to COVID and people thinking that it was going to be taken care of by now. Um, and so I, I think in general, the court's ruling on Roe will probably drive out Democrats and and particularly women who, as we've seen, have the potential to swing, you know, huge amounts of the election just just by virtue of, um, you know, where they live and where they come out. Um, but, you know, I think there's going to be other factors at play. What do you think? Yeah, yeah,
1: there's no question. I mean, it. you know, I think it potentially will be a very big deal. And obviously, yeah. it is not an issue that like, oh, it you know, kind of like the vote for the Iraq war in 2002. It's not people are going to forget about it. Mm-hmm. in t- 2023, right? It's going it, to, it will be a big issue forever, basically. Um, so I think it'll be a really big issue, but I also think you're right. And in, in a way that goes beyond any, any, any conversation about abortion rights, you know, of course it's about COVID. Of course it's about COVID. You know, w- we, we have the, you know, that old James Carville line, you know, it's the economy stupid economy's bad, economy's good. When you have a really bad economy, the vast majority of people still have their job. They're still making the same amount of money. It it's, it, it changes everybody's mood, but most people are pretty much in the same situation they were when the economy was good, right? Or, um, you know, CRT paranoia. You, you know, most things that we all understand are huge things politically. For the vast, majority, the vast majority of people, those people are spectators, right? Now, you're a spectator in a game, you might get, you know, coach might send you in, right? To join the unemployment lines, but still the effect on us, but COVID is different. Even if you 're not in the hospital, man, it is totally like you know I was coming up the elevator in my apartment building just today and had one of those moments where i thought wow it's weird that we 're all st- standing here with masks that 's weird that's really weird. I did not expect that my whole life I have not seen that that is really weird and uh there's five of us in a pretty small elevator, so maybe i 'm going to try to breathe a little less until we get to the ninth floor where I, you know just it it is so. It affects all of us so much. And that's let alone like if you're a, a healthcare worker who's who's been at this for almost two years and you're just at burnout and you're, you know, you don't know if you can keep going anymore. I mean, um, my experience of COVID, relatively speaking, has been quite mild. I haven't gotten COVID. I am blessed to have a professional situation where i can just hang out at home and you know when things get really bad go into the plastic bubble in my apartment like i you know like i mentioned at the at the beginning of the episode but it is it affects everybody so much that of course it's all about covid and we should you know you're a hundred percent right and we should just we should just have that be um the basic assumption about everything going forward until this is done to whatever extent it gets done, you know, um, just as just a kind of a random nugget of information, got a a reader email today, um, from someone who, uh, just mentioned that this person had traveled to a state kind of bluish purple state, uh, very educated, affluent school district. And everybody at that school district is totally, you know, not Republican crazies about masks everybody is on edge because I guess in that school district, they just don't have enough teachers. For whatever reason, they don't have enough staff to keep the schools open. And parents are kind of wondering each day, am I going to get a call that they had to cancel school today because they didn't have enough teachers and teachers' aides and stuff like this? I don't know what that's about. You know, COVID relief bill set aside tons of money for schools. And I don't like, I don't know if that is about that that district has had a retention problem or is it that they have, you know, lots of teachers are having to, you know, kind of stay home for two weeks because they had some nominal exposure to COVID somewhere. And they're I have no idea, but there's just all these ways where people's lives are still getting pressured and pressured hard, if not turned upside down because of COVID, And like, is it Biden's fault? Like, I don't know. Again, I don't know what's going on in that one district. This is a big district somewhere in the middle of the country. But man, he's in charge. So it's kind of all on Biden. And uh, so I think you're right. It is, is, if we are really doing well on COVID, I think the Democrats are in a, a world of a different situation. If it sucks, then like, you know, it's really bad. Having said that, though, I do think abortion is one of those very few game-changing issues. And I think the other thing is, you know, we're kind of thinking in terms of federal politics, but I did a post this afternoon where I pointed out that I think a lot of people think, oh, well, it's going to suck in Texas. It's going to suck in Mississippi. It's going to suck in Idaho. But it could suck like in Wisconsin or even Pennsylvania. Because the thing is, people, you know, a lot of people saying, oh, you know, democracy's on the ballot and 2022. But the reality is that a lot of states, their state legislatures are so aggressively gerrymandered that basically Democrats like aren't ever going to have big control of the state legislatures. You know, Wisconsin is like a 50-50 state, right? Governors is always like, you know, 51-49, president 51-49. But for the last decade in Wisconsin, it's Republicans have either had a majority or a super in the state legislature. So basically, Democrats are never going to control that. I and mean, you know, never has a short half-life in politics. But like, you know, as far as we can see out into the future, in 2020, Democrats barely prevented Republicans from getting a super in the state legislature while Biden won, <laughs> right? So you you have these cases like, you know, evers loses in in 2022 you've already got a permanent republican legislature why won't they just ban abortion if there's no row and frankly pennsylvania state legislature is kind of the same right michigan's kind of the same so um in addition to the federal stuff i would imagine i think the wolf guy is term lit in pennsylvania but whoever's running there or like with evers governor can say like you know if I don't win, there goes all abortion rights in this state. I think that's pretty powerful Mm -hmm. in states like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Michigan, because I think there are a lot of, I mean, it gets beyond our ideological tendencies and our ideas about rights. I think there's a lot of people in those states who think like, oh, there might not I' if, if, you're, if you're a woman, I might not be able to get an abortion next year if this governor's race doesn't go right. I think that puts the puts the fear of God into people politically and a God, and obviously it's not just women, right? So I think it can be pretty potent at the state level too. So you know it's just a, it's just a um, it's just a huge it's just a we know how huge it is as a reproductive rights issue. It's a huge issue electorally, too. And, um, you know, I, I think we're going to we're going to see it play out pretty soon.
0: There's also the the old chestnut of, you know. It's a lot harder to take away a right after people have gotten used to it. And we've had 50 years of people getting used to the fact that abortion is legal in the United States. And then to just rip the rug out under that and and. Introduce the reality that abortion is only accessible at all if you live in a state under democratic power. I mean, you know, and and not to look through rose-colored glasses, Mississippi has exactly one abortion clinic right now. These rights have been under assault for decades. But, you know, to have that just that clear bifurcation of you live in a blue state, you know, women have full access to health care. If you live in a red state, you don't. Yeah. I mean, that you're asking a a lot of women to kind of be okay living in a place where a whole swath of healthcare is just unavailable. So yeah, I agree. I still think that COVID is going to be a huge factor, but I do think it's going to be super potent, which again is why I was a bit surprised that they didn't couch the language more today because I think the backlash is going to be something to behold.
1: Okay. So I think we agree. uh, It will be a It will be a dramatic and game-changing event electorally in addition to as a substantive issue of of a huge amount of the population losing access to healthcare and reproductive rights. So uh, we'll know more about this. Well, I guess we'll really know more about it in uh, six or seven months, but we'll probably know, we'll get more of a sense of the politics even even by uh, the next episode. So uh, let me remind everybody, the Josh Marshall podcast brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. And that's it. All right. Later.
0: Later.